Have you ever thought about your rights and freedoms regarding your money and its impact by legislation from all levels of government? Welcome to the Information Edge with your host, Darren Yancey. Darren has over 40 years of experience in key sectors of the economy, and he's been knee-deep in politics for over a decade. He's going to get into detail on these sectors, the politics surrounding them, what they mean to you, and how you can protect yourself and be involved. Now, live from Texas, your host, Darren Yancey. All right, folks, hope you've had, I know you had a wonderful Christmas. We're into the we're into the new year now. Uh, everything's going well. We've got great weather. We had a little bit of a cold snap, and it's Wednesday, and it means it's my job to get you from the doldrums of Monday and Tuesday and get you to what's called Freedom Friday. You can see it on the horizon. You know it's coming, and that's what the, we do here at the Information Edge. So welcome to the Edge, the Information Edge podcast. I'm your host, Darren Yancey. Now, one of the things that I did at the end of last year is I went out and made a great big fat commitment. I put it out on the, the blog site, uh, informationedge.net, which is actually not a blog site, it's my website, that I was committed to taking a wrecking ball to the political institutions that we have right now that are basically doing us no good, whether it's at the city level, county level, uh, your county commissioners, state, federal, whatever position is, if I think there's somebody that's an incumbent that's got some problems that can use some challenging, that I'm going to offer an opportunity for those candidates that want to put on the candidate cape to go out and be heard and give them a voice and a very large voice. That's what we're doing this year. And in line with that, I've got a gentleman that wants to, uh, he wants to be the next lieutenant governor of the great state of Texas. Uh, he's challenging uh, in the primary um, a pretty entrenched incumbent. Uh, Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick. And so I'm going to bring on to the show right now. We're going to find out if he's worth your support and your vote, Mr. Aaron Sorrells. Aaron, how are you doing today? Doing good. How are you? You know, the great thing about living here in Texas, you know, last week was in the 20s. Today it's 70. And I know it's going to get a little cold. But and I really do feel sorry for the people that are just freezing their numbers off in portions of our country, whether I, I agree with them politically or not. I don't like anybody to uh, to, to freeze to death because I've got bones that hurt hurt when it happens. But, you know, right now, I, you know, I've been a candidate myself, uh, got close, but close only counts in horseshoes and hand grenades. So I have an appreciation for someone that wants to take on an incumbent because you've got certain types of disagreements. But why don't you introduce yourself to the audience here? Uh, who you are, give a little background, and why you feel that it's time for you to challenge Dan Patrick for Lieutenant Governor for the state of Texas. Well, a couple of things. One, just to be clarification here, uh, my name is actually Aaron Sorrells, as you said, but I've been going by Aaron Sorrells. So oh, everybody I'm sorry. Hears me. No, you're good. I didn't so mean it's to fun butcher I like... your name. No, no, you actually didn't. That's the funny thing. So it's kind of become a joke now. So the fact is, one, I talk a little fast. And when I say Soros, a lot of people think I was saying Soros. So I started going by Sorrells, which I've been called that all my life as well. That's so I'm kind of used to hearing it. So that's I, I can tell everybody. is what we call that. That's Texanified. Yeah. So I, uh, I've been effectively, you know, I'm so dedicated to this that I decided to change my last name. So uh, that's kind of been the running joke now without that. But uh, technically, either way is correct. So, but yeah, so why I did this, just quick backstory. Uh, I am a small business owner. And, and I've gone through all the supply chain issues. I'm struggling through those right now. I'm getting yelled at all the time by customers because we're such a now, now, now society. They don't understand that, you know, it's it's kind of out of our control as business owners, what's going on. 
And so then, you know, you look at the mask mandates, the vaccine mandates, we never put those on our employees. We've never asked them to do it. I've only worn a mask twice uh, this entire time. And I live in Dallas, Fort Worth, right? A big city where it's almost impossible to avoid it. And ultimately what happened is five months ago, I took my 11 year old son. I have three boys, 14, 11 and eight. My 11 year old son broke his foot in jujitsu. I went into Cook Children's in Fort Worth, urgent care and carried him in. And to cut the short story a little bit, basically, Within 15 minutes, I had two staff people, three nurses. I had been denied by doctors and administrators. And they said, come up close to the desk, which was laughable because they were so worried about masks and I didn't wear them. And they said, we're not denying you service. You're choosing not to wear a mask. And at so that Cook point, Children's Center it. Hospital over in Fort Worth, which, by the way, gets a bundle of money from local and state revenues. What? According to Paxton office, they're a private company and there's nothing we can do about it. Well, I'm... And, hey, and not only that, Mark Davis, I went on the show with Mark Davis, 660, and I have that recording of where he told me it's not the hospital's fault if you have 14 medical conditions. Go get someone else to take your kid to the doctor. Wow. And it took everything in me to not go off <laughs> the hinges on him because I said, what about like my employee that's a single dad that has no one else? What's he supposed to do? Just a random stranger. Can you take my kid to the doctor? Like, I mean, this is the craziness we're in right now. So, I mean, they violated their oath. They violated Imtala law. They, they violated everything possible as what a hospital should do. Uh, luckily, my wife was on her way because we knew this was a potential problem. And, you know, about 15 minutes later, they were able to do something about it. Uh, but my son is strong and he knew what he knew the situation we were walking into. But so I looked at it after that and I said, here's the deal. There's three governor candidates running after Abbott. I don't, I don't need to challenge them. Uh, and, and I looked at the positions that were available. And I said, you know what? There's nobody running after Dan Patrick. And Dan Patrick is the most powerful position in Texas. Yes, he is. And he had the authority as the legislature to put an end to Abbott's tyranny because he never went through it the lawful way. He never went through the legislature. He never went through any process other than mandates. And those aren't lawful. And he could have called and he could have got with Paxson and said, hey, if any of these counties or anybody enacts these mandates, you're outside the law and we are going to come after you for it. Aaron, let, me, let, me, let me throw something out for audience because you said something that I know, but we need to define for audience. Folks, in the state of Texas, the lieutenant governor, and I can't say this for every state, but the lieutenant governor is the one that actually has the legislative authority uh, in running our legislative House of Representatives and our legislator of state senators. Uh, he actually, it's kind of like a, when you have a city that's got a mayor and a city manager and the mayor's kind of out there, but the city manager really runs it. That's kind of what we have in Texas between the governor and the lieutenant governor. That doesn't mean the governor doesn't have powers. That doesn't mean the governor doesn't have duties, but the lieutenant governor from a legislative standpoint, he kind of runs the show behind the scenes. Sorry, Aaron, I didn't mean to interrupt, but that's something I think our audience needs to understand. No, that's good information. Yeah. Cause I have to explain that myself. People don't realize in Texas how powerful uh, the Lieutenant governor is. So the fact is when things aren't getting done around the state and your legislation is not getting done and your executive branch is running amok and being a little tyrant, your Lieutenant governor has the authority to put him in check and he didn't do it. So that's why I decided to go after him. I wasn't going to let him go without a challenge uh, because you know, you, you look at multiple things, even down to the priorities of the people that never get done. And everybody that's in the grassroots or a true conservative is sick of hearing that this was the most conservative legislature in 20 years. It's, it's on, on paper. It, it, it appeared that way. 
but from a performance standpoint, I think I, I have to say, and I've tried to, I've tried to hold off because I was actually, I'm a former Abbott appointee. I, I, and we'll get into that another day, but the reality of the situation is I think this was probably one of the worst run sessions that I can remember in recent history of having opportunities with the number of people that are supposedly conservative, just leave item after item after item off and not get it through. Well, yeah. And that's kind of how I went after, decided to go after Patrick and prove it is people don't understand how that one, they don't understand the power of the Lieutenant governor. And then they don't understand the, uh, the eight GOP priorities. And the fact is when you see almost 5,000 bills get proposed in the house, and I think it's like 480 something close to 500 past the house. And I think it's around 300 past the Senate but the eight priorities that the people of Texas asked for don't get done and never get done every session that says the priorities in Texas are backwards. And, and if you're a conservative and you can't get even, and I won't even get into the details yet, but technically three out of eight is what they will say they got. That's not a passing grade in my book. And it shouldn't be a passing grade in anybody's book for that's, that believes in freedom and liberty and being a conservative. So give us a little bit about your background. You said you're a small business owner. Have you always been on your own in business? No. So uh, my history and work is uh, kind of the same reason I'm running for office now. Uh, I, uh, I effectively lived the American dream. I, I didn't go to college. I, I went a year and a half. College just wasn't my thing. Uh, schooling was always easy for me. I was ninth in my class. I ended up graduating like 32nd because my last year I just I had some stuff go on and didn't do as well. But, uh, you know, school was never hard. I went to college and was like, you know, what? I'm not going to pay people to tell me how to be smart. I, I, I'll figure this out myself. And I just don't comply well, uh, honestly. It's kind of like right now. And so I went to work and kind of busted my butt. I've always made pretty good money. I've lost jobs here and there. Every time I've managed to find a better job and work my way up to management, I've been a manager at multiple positions. And ultimately, every job I got into, I watched corporations make law rules, kind of like our government makes laws, and the people at the top don't abide by those rules, but they expect us to hold everybody to those rules. And so when I would confront them and I would call them on it and I would stand up for my employees, then they would start finding ways to get rid of me. I, I knew my policy, so they couldn't fire me. So they would just basically make my life hell. And so I would, you know, either I would either quit or finally I would I'd break a straw and they'd get something and they'd use it against me. And so uh, it ultimately, I went and worked with my dad. We made a business, economy crashed back in 09. We had to file bankruptcy. Father and son started fighting. Shocker, right? Um that never happens. Anyway, so I stepped away for a while, did some other stuff. I ended up injuring myself. And, and at the end, they were coming after me again at this other job. I was there nine years. And I was clearly obvious. And finally, my wife looked at me and goes, you can't ever work for anybody ever again. It's never going to work. And I was like, I'm glad you finally agree. So I went back to work with my dad. Not what I planned to go do. But, you know, when you rupture your disc twice in seven months, you don't really have much choice at that point. Um, and so, yeah, so I went back to work with my dad. And now we've got 26 employees. Uh, multi-million dollar business, you know, five, almost a five-star review after 16 years, effectively the business has been around. Uh, you don't get that in retail in 16 years right now with Google, unless you know how to take care of people. And so it's kind of the same thing when you take care of people and you take care and you run your business properly and you take care of your employees, that normally means you get a good results on your reviews. And that's the way our government should run too. We should want to take care of the constituents and we should want to do that. So uh, no, my, my history, like I said, is basically the American dream. I built myself from ground up become a business, successful business owner. And now I'm trying to do something else for other people that are not seeing those results. Now I want to get the government off our backs. Let's talk about some questions that I put together that I put out for my followers and listeners of, you know, a lot of people are, are 
they're, they're wanting to come out. We're, we're going through right now some very tumultuous times. Um, nothing that we haven't been through for, nothing that we're not going to survive. But right now we do have an onslaught of what I would call homegrown issues uh, in terms of the people that are now running virtually every facet of state, uh, local, county, federal government, you name it, they're in the institutions. And so it's time to take it back. And there's people that want to step up to take it back, but not everybody is what they seem. Um, and that's important that people understand if you're going to re- look, when you learn what issue A is, if you're going to replace issue A, you got to be sure that candidate B can do a better job. So I've come up with a list of questions that we ask folks, and they're, they're very straightforward questions. Um, and there's nothing here designed to sandbag or make you look. I mean, I think these are questions you probably already filled in. There might be a few that you haven't. Um, but I'm going to go through a list of them, and let's just talk about where you stand. I haven't went to your website in terms of reading through your platform or answers because I like I don't want to have loaded questions. I wanted this is my question. You just answer it the way you answer it. But let's let's start. If, if you're a lieutenant governor, that covers a lot of breadth, okay? Um, and it's an area that obviously controls a big, big purse. So let's start at the power of the purse. You're the lieutenant governor. We've got to have the state house and the state senate come together to put forth budgets that are agreed. How do you feel about zero-based budgeting as opposed to taking the same budget each year and starting where you left off and go through? Because money is kind of a key critical factor with these folks. So give me your impression of zero-based budgeting. Well, actually, that's the first time that's been asked. So I'm going to have to clarify that fully um, and focus on all the other issues. But I'll just answer it this way. Um, and I'm not going to be afraid to tell someone the truth when I don't know exactly. And that doesn't fine. mean I can't go look it up, right? Um, I have plenty of people that are good at finances that are helping me. But here's my feeling on the budget. I think we need a constitutional amendment to the budget, uh, to, the, to the state constitution that says we are not going to take any more than 85 to 90 percent of the previous intake. And the rest has to be either used to fill the rainy day fund or pay down the deficit. I think that's the way we should start looking at budgeting and we should start looking at how we would do, I joke about putting it on the Dave Ramsey plan. Um, All the ways we've done budgeting now doesn't work. I mean, the budget gets, everything keeps going higher and higher and higher. It doesn't matter what we do. That's why our taxes keep being raised. So I think the way we do it now needs to be looked at as what do you do as a business owner? And as a business owner, you look at what you can spend and you make sure that you have enough left over to grow and to take care of your employees and to, you know, because emergencies come up and things happen. And right now, that's not how any of our budgets done. We're using everything. They'll say they're putting money back. But the fact is, it, it, it's funny. So when you listen to the conservative Republican, well, quote, conservative Republicans, they'll be like, oh, we had all this extra money. And then you go talk about, oh, we need to fix the wall. We need to do the deal. And they're like, oh, we're out of money. And it's like, wait, you told me we had money. And now you tell me we don't have money. Well, which one is it? So, I mean, our budget has gotten worse and worse every year. Uh, we don't control it. We don't cut spending. Uh, where we do cut it, yeah, we're better than other states, but, you know, there's there's way too many subsidies. There's way too many programs that are draining our system. And uh, I think we need to change the attitude and go back to, like I said, how I run my business, which is we always have money in my business because that's how you protect yourself from the emergency situations. And then if you save that money, when we do have the major catastrophes like the hurricanes or anything like that, then we aren't strapped and we can do what we need to do. So uh, like I said, that, I'm not sure. That answer yeah. leads to a very good question that just came off the top of my head. So we may be plowing new ground here. Texas has the rainy day fund, which I don't know if it's constitutionally authorized, to be honest with you. 
which means they're keeping taxpayer dollars and instead of applying it to debt or refund, refunding it to taxpayers, it's sitting in an account. Now, if I'm wrong on this, somebody let me know. But I don't think that's a constitutionally authorized piggy bank. So let's say you are, and I'm not saying I'm against it, first off. I just don't know if it's properly authorized. So I'd want to be sure that it's properly authorized, but let's go back to what you just said. Let's say we're taking the Dave Ramsey approach here, okay? It either needs to go back to the taxpayers or it needs to go back and pay off deficit. Or do you feel it should be kept out there for emergencies such as catastrophes, the wall, whatever? What's your opinion on that rainy day fund? Should it be refunded? Should it be kept? Is it properly authorized? It's because a lot of people forget that there's a big chunk of money sitting out there and it's our money. Yeah, you're right. I think, so I think there's no problem in, in paying taxes as long as we're utilizing it and we're trying to focus on reducing the government and paying down def, the deficit at the same time and saving some money because the fact is everything's a projection. I mean, look, right, what's inflation's up 7%. Well, if you project on that and inflation goes up like it's doing right now, you're, you're going to put yourself strapped for a position where you don't have enough money to do it. So I don't see anything wrong with having a rainy day fund because the same thing goes in Dave Ramsey plan, right? You have a savings account in your real life. You have a savings account. As long as we're focusing on bringing things down at the same time, but and then setting that budget, like I said, at 85 to 90% so that we are utilizing that properly and saying, hey, we're going to live within our means. I think at some point, if it gets too big, yeah, then we need to start, you know, we need to start giving that money back. Uh, but if, if we could ever get to that point, <laughs> I think we would all be happy. It's kind of like when gas prices go down. I used to work in the gas industry. Uh, when the gas prices go down, nobody complains that the price is going down slowly because it's coming down. And that's where the gas stations make their money back because uh, people are happy. So I think at that point, once it's going down, then people will be happy enough to say, hey, as long as we're utilizing it the right way, I don't think anybody's going to complain about having an emergency fund for, you know, like we said, like these hurricanes that have hit us a couple of times, the tornado act, you know, some of the bad tornadoes we've had. Uh, you know, hopefully we don't have another energy crisis, uh, you know, things like that. So I don't see a problem with it. I'm, I'm not sure if it's constitutionally accurate or not either. I guess that's a good question. I've never, I don't I've think it looked, is. I've asked yeah, that I question mean, to others and I've never been given what's well, in this portion of this section of the constitution. I don't, I don't think it is a constitutionally authorized fund. I mean, I don't see from what I've read, I don't see where it would be either. It's not, there's nothing in the constitution that, that says you can have a savings account effectively. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, now, I'm not saying but, I'm against it. I'm just saying, yeah. I think if you're going to have it first off, have it authorized. I mean, I think that goes with most things, right? Yeah. <laughs> that's like, I mean, that's, that's like everything right now with all these mandates. Like that's been the problem is it's like, is that even constitutional? Like what well, we, we got a constitutional amendment that we, for, so that we, that Abbott couldn't close down churches. We didn't have a constitutional right to do it in the first place. So what's to say that works? So, yeah, I mean, yeah. we're already talking about not following the Constitution a lot. Well, and that's part of the problem. We've got to flush those that aren't doing that. Now, let's talk about this is another closely related topic because it's a funding mechanism. And in the state of Texas, it's a hotly contested. And I can tell you, I know right now, both as a, uh, a citizen taxpayer and someone that brings uh, light to topics, that that's going to be a drum I'm going to be beating until it changes. And that's property taxes in the state. I think we're either the fifth or sixth highest tax state in the nation. And that's effective taxes, uh, not based upon the actual value. In other words, if we were actually probably getting all of our values taxed, it'd be even worse. Uh, we just have a problem with our taxes. Used to be everybody got paid off of consumption tax. 
and there is now a groundswell that we need to go back to a consumption tax. Um, where do you stand on ad valorem taxes? By the way, real quick too, I went ahead while I was listening to you recap zero base budget, make sure I understood it. So I did get understand. I just didn't know that was the term for it. So I would well, say- kind of, I would, When you say 85%, you're kind of saying it. Yeah, so exactly. Yeah, so you're, you're pulling out the fluff from last year. Correct. Exactly. So yeah. So basically, it's that with a, a little bit more, you know, restrictions on it, so we don't blow it. So uh, so here's the thing: property taxes are immoral. Uh, there's nothing right about them at all. Uh, it's it's ridiculous that we're seeing our prices rise the way they are. It's affecting the lower class and the lower middle class, and even the middle middle class a lot more than it affects other people. And with the influx from out of state. Uh, Great. If my houses are going up in price and I can sell it for that much money down the road, fine. I don't care about that. But the fact is, since that's attached to my taxing, then it's not okay. Because when you make budgets, I mean, prime example is you've got people that, like I had a guy tell me the other day that he bought his house for $40,000. Now it's worth $170,000. He's having to pay taxes on $170,000. Well, he bought the house at $40,000. It's not his fault that it went match. So now he's paid off his house a long time ago, but now he's having to keep paying these. And so a lot of people are on that lower budget. And that's a lot of hardworking Texans that, you know, they don't have the greatest jobs. But you know what? We'd stop messing with them all the time with property taxes. They'd be able to live in their homes safely. But with all the gentrification coming in and they're buying up every piece of land, especially where I am in Dallas-Fort Worth, you know, they're buying every piece of land, jacking up these home values. And now it's basically taxing people out of their homes. So, you know, we need to eliminate property taxes completely. We do need to move to a consumption tax. And I've backed the plan called eliminatepropertytax.com. It's the bill was actually proposed uh, back in 2013. And it moves us to a value added tax, which is known as a VAT. Um, it is consumption based and it's not what a lot of people think. A lot of people go, oh, VAT, it's the European tax on tax on tax. No, no, it's not a tax on top of tax. Uh, the fact is, there's a lot of places in Texas that cannot survive off a of sales tax. Not every place in Texas has that much retail sales tax. So you'd have to jack up to 15 to 20%. That's not viable. No one's going to want to pay that. Uh, There's still going to be a lot of hidden taxes in with the sales tax, which we already, that's the funny thing about tax on top of tax is (laughs) I tell people we're already taxed on top of tax as it is. You might want to start looking at all the taxes and your pricing. Uh, But, you know, if you're near the borders, you're just going to hop over the border. You're going to go into New Mexico, Louisiana, uh, you know, Oklahoma and boss up there. Why, why pay 20% when you can go pay 8% or whatever it is across the, across the line. People are going to try to dodge it online. They're going to try to avoid everything just like we do now with sales tax. So the consumption-based tax uh, with that plan covers 95% of all counties and cities. There's 5% we have to kind of figure out, but so that everybody understands how this works. If you go and buy something at a grocery store for $5, right now, the way this plan works, we should be around 10%. That means you go to buy it at the grocery store, it's $5.50 now. If you then mark it up $5 and you were to resell that, the item would now be $10.50. However, you have to now charge 10% on top of the $5 you added, the value you added, which is now $5.50 again. So you've now paid $11 at the end. Okay. Well, if we said we were going to pay $10 for the item and we weren't going to charge any tax before that, and we had a 10% sales tax, guess what you would be at? $11. It's the same thing because you're only taxing the value added. You're not taxing on top of the original $5 with it. And that's where everybody says they, they try to scare people away from a VAT. And the way this plan is designed, it won't cost us. Uh, we're not putting in a ton of exceptions like they do in Europe. So we're not looking at 20, 30%. It should be around 10%. 
Um, it still protects the ISDs. It still protects the funding. And when they ran the budget, it should produce, on the last time they ran it, it produced $4 billion more than the current tax system, but it abolishes 60 plus other taxes that were already paid for. So it simplifies the tax system. It makes it a lot easier. Accounting softwares already have it set up for Europe, so it's easy for them to like quit books, stuff to move it in for businesses. And it removes a lot of problems. Like for me as a business owner, when I go and sell some, sometimes I want to do it at cost. And I want to do that. Well, it's like, well, you're retail selling it now, even though it's cost, you got to charge tax on it. Well, and this it's not because if I didn't add any value to it, then there's no more taxes. If you just pass it on, you just pass it on. Correct. So it actually makes it from a business owner, especially for me as a person who gives displays and all kinds of retail items out to builders and things like that. Now, I don't have to worry about, oh, can I dodge sales tax on this one or not? Oh, hey, do you have a sales tax ID? Oh, you don't? Well, I got to charge. It eliminates all that confusion. It's like, look, I didn't add any more. I paid $100 and I gave it to you for $100. I've already paid the taxes. We're done. So um, it's a very good system and it, it would solve a lot of our issues. Well, I know it's something that we're seeing more candidates come out with on the ballot. Uh, I think within the next two legislative sessions, one or two things, it's either going to have to be eliminated completely or it's going to have to be dramatically reduced. And there's going to have to be at some point where people are no longer uh, obligated to pay property tax. You, you, you can't be taking someone who's invested and paid for the house and now they're going into their golden years and you take that house back from them through property taxes. Uh, that's slavery. Yep. Last time I checked, <laughs> we fought a war over slavery. So you know, unless we want to fight another one, we need to find a way to end this particular problem. So uh, thank you for answering that uh, with Vermin Vigor. Let's talk about some things. Uh, and I know this has nothing to do with Lieutenant Governor position, but it does have something to do with some of the entities within the state government that the Lieutenant Governor can have an impact on. Let's talk about uh, school boards and our school, our, our Texas State Board of Education. It's got a lot of people in it that have conservative leanings, yet how in the hell did it allow in many of our school districts CRT to get out there? Because correct me if I'm wrong, doesn't the curriculum come from the State Board of Education? It does. And so according- how do you think it got out there and what would you do to help change that if you're lieutenant governor? Well, okay. So <laughs> the first one's Dan an Patrick. opinion. The second one's a plan. Yeah. So uh, I actually called Dan Patrick out because he went on Twitter about Fort Worth ISD saying, well, I banned CRT. Why is this lady still doing this? I'm like, why are you on Twitter talking about this? If you banned it, then go enforce the ban. What do you mean? Someone get rid of her. You, you're the lieutenant governor. You go deal with it. it, it it's, it's so bad. But the fact is... Uh, it is coming from the Board of Education. Uh, Abbott appointed the, the person in charge right now. What they do is they ban a program and then they just make a new program and they re, they just rename it and they whoop, there goes CRT back in under a different name. It's the way the Marxists and the socialist ideologies get into everything. So my plan would be this. We need to go back and overhaul the entire education system. Uh, now, I have a deeper plan, which well, let's start with the basics first, right? Uh, you need to go in and we need to go back to teaching the subjects and that's it. No more social emotional learning in school at all. Because when you bring the social skills in, which is the parent's job, not the school's job, then they're always going to find a way through the social emotional learning to work back in the, their, their agendas. The fact is that English teacher isn't, doesn't go to school to be a psychologist. The English teacher goes to school to English. The math teacher goes to school for math. 
So they teach math, they teach English, they teach writing. That's what they teach. They're subjects and they stop. And if we get rid of all these social programs, all this complaint about teachers wanting more money, well, guess what? There'd be more money, wouldn't there be? Because we wouldn't have all these extracurricular parts of the social emotional learning. We wouldn't have all this funding going into that. And it would go back to your paycheck. So the simple solution is to go back to teaching the basics, add back in civics and, and things like that. And then I would say for my bigger plan is to honestly, and this is the controversial subject in the state of Texas of all places, I would like to see all extracurricular activities, including sports, removed from school. We didn't used to have that in school. I would like to see us go K through eight. I would like to see ninth through 12th be used more like trade schools and college prep. And I would like to see us go back to focusing on making proper citizens that come out of eighth grade, understanding the school subjects, understanding civics, and then they get to spend the next four years of their life working on things that are productive because we've destroyed the trade industry. And if this, the extracurricular activities can survive because we do live in a capitalist society, then there will be plenty of nonprofit organizations that will come up and they will make these programs. Right now, there's select baseball, select soccer, select volleyball, and all these programs that survive. And then everybody uses the excuse, well, what about the poor kids? They can't get into those programs. Hmm. Sure they okay, can. so you're going to tell me that a, a smart business owner that wants to win in football, high school football in Texas, right? You're going to tell me that that guy's not going to go look for the best athletes and he's not going to find a way to get them on his team? No, he's going to find a way to get that kid on the team and figure out how to cover the cost for that kid. So that's a lousy excuse. It's how they scare people. And then we can also take those big stadiums, those lovely $60 million stadiums, that have been used on our tax dollars, by the way, back to taxpayer funded lobbying, if anybody wants to discuss that. And then you can say, hey, we're going to loan these back to you and we'll, we'll work out a plan for you to pay us back for the money that was spent on these to be used for your organization for the football teams. Or how, about, just, how, about, how about just lease them out to those organizations? Lease them either way. Well, I'd like to get them out of the government's control. So lease them. But I would like to have is like a buyout program where eventually it's off the, the schools, uh, you know, off the government dole. Finance it for them. Yeah, that's that's. That's a good idea. Because here's the thing: you, you realize, of course, by by making that statement, yeah, everybody that's in the sports factory, you're, you're they're going to go, they're, they're they're clutching their pearls, uh, you know, and the music and art industry, yeah, and that's something. But I agree with it. It's it is something we we do have to have a change. It's how you can facilitate uh, that change. But you mentioned another topic we want to roll into, and yes, it, it, it is. Something that was not properly addressed. I know it was partially addressed, but it wasn't properly addressed in this past session. And that is taxpayer-funded lobbying. And for those of you that don't know what that means, that means when you pay either your city tax or your county tax or your real estate taxes to a governmental entity or any type of governmental entity, and that governmental entity uses that revenue to therefore hire a lobbying group to go to the governmental entity that they respond to, to do things that are not in your best interest, that is taxpayer-based lobbying. Now, Aaron, how would you get rid of that? And I mean, get oh, here's another one. Get here's another one. Yeah, it needs to go. But here's another one people don't think about. And that's why I brought it up with stadiums. Those organizations that are building these big stadiums and these gigantic schools, it is also a taxpayer-funded lobby because what they're doing is they're going in and they're getting contracts and it's in their best interest to win that contract, which is paid through our taxpayer dollars. So they go out and they create their own marketing stuff and they go and advertise and try to get these bonds passed 
because ultimately that works to their favor to get the contract. If that bond fails, they don't get that contract. So there's a lot of ways in the school district, same thing, right? They go up and they lobby with our money to get the ISD tax, the, the taxes raised, and they keep trying to get more and more. So yeah, it needs to end. Our we should not we should not be funding it. It's just plain and simple. There's there's really not much to say other than it's wrong. It shouldn't be happening. And the fact is, the reason it continues to happen is our current elected officials are being paid off by the lobbyists, and that's why they'll never want to see that happen. So it is just it just go in and ban it. It's really not that complicated. <laughs> Banned. Just don't allow it. Uh, but yeah, they that was one of the top eight priorities this session and it from the people. And once again, it didn't get done. So in terms of introducing they got half what I'd call half-baked legislation out there. What changes would you make and have a true legislative piece to get rid of that lobbying? How would you do it? Honestly, I'm not sure fully off the top of my head. Um, I know the basic problem of it. I, and then that's like I said, that I, we had talked about other ideas and I've heard things people talk about, like what you described at first. And then people threw it to me like the school, like the, the contract I brought up. And I was like, oh God, I hadn't even thought about the fact that these guys are these contractors are using our money the same way. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, there's, there's, there's going to have to be some serious conversation because I don't think people have thought it all the way through. And I haven't looked at any legislation on that. Um, and it's, and I'm not a lawyer, so I need to look through it. I need to make sure I understand it because I'm not going to agree to bills that uh, I personally haven't read and understand like our elected officials love to do right now. So I'm not going to sit up here and tell you I know the answer fully to that. I just know we've got to find every way they're abusing it. And we need to make sure that we ban it because if we don't, then once again, we're double dipping and paying taxes for people to do use our money against us. And that's not okay. Let's switch gears for just a second. Let's talk about the lieutenant governor, like the governor's office, has appointees. There are appointments out there that you select people to do. There's a lot of day-to-day work within state government that if people had to campaign for them, they wouldn't. You need volunteers to do this work. It's kind of the lifeblood of the system. What is your, what's the profile you're looking for when you're sitting down with this list of appointees that the Lieutenant Governor would have to do and say, okay, this is what I'm wanting. What's, what's your profile that you're looking for, Aaron? For an appointee to like committees? Absolutely. Um, I think first it's best to have someone that knows that industry. I mean, that's, that's like key. You don't want to put someone on a board that has no, you know, it'd be like, like we just talked about, right? Like, I'm not a lawyer. You probably don't want someone that has never dealt with taxes going in and dealing with property taxes. <laughs> it's like, you probably want someone that understands that system and it deals with it, but you need to make sure that they're, they're honest with it. Uh, I've, I've had this question asked and how I'm going to deal with this by some of the grassroots organizations. And so I think it, I think if we really want to get an elected, our, an elected representative to do the job, I think we need to reach out to organizations that are good and not just like the policy foundations that are basically lobbyist groups trying to use that money again. So like, for instance, with eliminate property tax, Russell and Rick, they're, they're not, they're not up there doing this stuff. They've been fighting for because they believe in it, but they, they've got a lot of citizens. They've got a group that has 16,000 people behind them. They've done and done the research. So I would say I'd bring in people like that. And I would try to find organizations in Texas, grassroots groups that have uh, focused on that. Um, for instance, like Jen Hall has been big on the toll roads, which we need to deal with. Toll roads have, uh, are a major problem. Now they're Spain owns them. You know, I would say you need to go find the people that really have fought hard for it 
that are regular citizens that understand it and understand what's going on and say, hey, I need you to come in and I need you to help me look at the senators on and, and look at everybody and say, let's find the best candidate to be in that position and let's make sure they do their job. And ultimately, if they're not doing their job, then I need to go back and remove them because that's where a lot of our problems are is these, these committees bury legislation and they get away with it. And so we don't really get to see how conservative or non-conservative your legislators are because they never have to actually vote on the true conservative legislation. So I, that's a very big task. And it's it's a very important task that needs to be handled differently. Uh, right now, Dan Patrick just pretty much puts people on if he doesn't like them or does like them. I mean, that's why he buried certain people. He, you know, he put uh, he put Kelly Hancock on VA and border thinking that it was going to put him in a bad position because they were, they didn't like, they were kind of fighting with each other. And then he put, and it ends up being a good one because he's now on the border. So it ended up being a bigger committee than he thought he was putting him on. So um, I'm not going to play those kind of games where I, I, I'm using committees to bury, bury legislation or to bury people and make them hate their job. I'm going to put people in the best position. And if they can't do that, we'll remove them and put them, you know, we'll, we'll replace them with a better one. All right. Let's, let's go back to, um, powers of the lieutenant governor in terms of a balance and a check for the governor. Because we had uh, Governor Abbott come out with an emergency order that just went on and on and on. And the lieutenant governor constitutionally has an opportunity to supersede and take that. Patrick hasn't done that. If you're in the same situation, what do you do differently and how do you explain it to the electorate of why you're doing it differently? Do me a favor, Darren. Can you repeat the question? My audio cut out for a second. Oh, basically, it, we're, we're talking check. You're, you're, the lieutenant governor is the check for the governor. He's the balance check. Right. Abbott put an emergency order in that went on forever. And the only reason that emergency order lifted is because he finished dead last at CPAC. Right. Okay. That's the reason. Senate Joint Resolution 45 was put out to check his powers, which he didn't want to do. The Lieutenant Governor has the power in the Texas Constitution to override such actions, constitutional actions. Patrick didn't. Obviously, you've said you would do different, but how would you explain to the electorate that doesn't maybe understand that power if you decide to exercise your your legislative ability to restrain how would you explain it to the electorate so they would understand it and support you in that? Because it was a major problem, I think, this past year in Texas and continues to be to this day. Well, yeah, so that actually kind of not to the level you asked it, but that kind of got asked uh, last night at the forum that we have for lieutenant governors. And the fact is this. The lieutenant governor has has the authority you're talking about to keep him in check. And I, so I think you go back with, for instance, let's use an example, COVID, right? The vax mandates and and uh, let's just even start first that shutting down businesses, right? When he went in and said, we can shut down businesses and everybody's got to be closed. That wasn't lawfully done. The legislature right. that was not passed through law. Uh, it's it's not lawful in any way, shape or form. Correct. And the lieutenant governor, being that he is partially executive and partial legislation, uh, should have stood up, got with Paxton and said, this is not lawful. Mandates are not, have not gone through the legislature. We have three branches for a reason. Those are to keep each other in check. You should have learned that in school, right? Um, and the fact is, even if he believes this is the right move, it's not done properly through the proper channels. And if it's not done through the proper channels, then you're allowing our governor 
to be effectively a tyrant and you're allowing him to rule like a king and we don't have kings in this country. So I'm, I'm issuing a command right now that everybody is to disobey the order. And if you, if from, from the citizen level, if you, if you find out one of your elected officials locally are not following that command, here's a hotline or whatever, give us a call. We'll deal with it. And then you need the attorney general right there besides saying, look, if, if you, if anybody follows through with this, we are going to come after you because you do not have the authority to enact these laws or this mandate. And I think in most situations, if you explain it to that way, most people are going to, especially in Texas, are going to be like, yeah, I don't want my governor having these powers. The people that are for that, you, you can't really do much about that because the whole point of having a republic and not a democracy is that in a republic, you follow rule of law and you don't get to just say, well, 51% of the people believe one way right now. So we're going to just, whoop, we're going to switch over and do it that way right now. We have laws on the books. We have proper procedures. And if they're not followed, then, then I'm going to do my job of making sure they are followed. And right now, Dan Patrick has refused to do that. So I think most people in Texas would understand that if you stood up and got on the news and explained that. Yeah, that may put you at odds with the governor, but that's why we have three branches. We're not supposed to just agree with everything they do. Okay. This is probably going to be one you've not been asked. According to the U.S. Constitution, Article 1, Section 4, basically our governors have the right to defend against invasion when our federal counterparts, i.e. the president, will not. In my opinion right now, we're under mass invasion because of Biden policies. A lot of people don't feel that Lieutenant, that the governor has done enough. There is a constitutional question within the state of Texas constitution as to whether the Lieutenant governor has the authority to take over and enforce defending our borders. What is your opinion on that? <laughs> uh, so it hasn't asked that specific way, but yeah, that basically comes up when it comes to how I'm going to stop the border. So it's, it's a constitutional issue federally. But the question is, if the governor is not doing it, does the lieutenant governor have that right? And, and I've heard both arguments. So here's what I've told everybody, and I, and I posted this online. Um, first thing I would say is I do have the right to do the funding. Uh, so I would fund the completion of the border. I would focus on that as part of the budget, uh, funding the state guard, funding any militia needed to help the state guard do their job. Um, I would enact uh ways legislation that said, you know, work on ways to shut down. Well, first, I'd also encourage the sheriffs to do their job and say, we're not going to be on you, you know, go deputize people if you need to do what you need to do to protect your county. And then also, I would say we're going to shut down the state highways and stop letting the federal government just use our property to run illegals all over the place from federal to federal locations. Um, so that's what I said. And then I followed it up with this, which is going to your point. I'm not sure what authority I fully have in this level. No one really can clarify it either. Like you said, you hear both ways. It's, but the it's fact is, it's muddy water. Right. The fact is, I've said multiple times, if I have to effectively create a constitutional crisis to protect the citizens of Texas, then you damn right I'm going to do it. Because I'm not going to let the governor, I'm not going to let the governor sit up there and not do his job. And I do have partial executive authority because I am still technically like a VP. And if the governor's not going to do his job, then I'm going to do everything in my powers to shut that border down and protect the citizens of Texas. And I don't see anybody in the state of Texas that's going to be like, oh, no, we can't let that happen. And if they do, then I'm going to expose who's doing it, because obviously there's a reason they're not protecting our borders. So, yes, I will force that situation if it came down to it on my end. Yeah, in my opinion, uh, uh, Patrick has gotten off light on that subject. 
Uh, and I think oh, that's very just, much so. Yeah. I think it's a, I think it's a really, I don't, I don't want to say stupidity. That's not the right terminology, but I think it's a level of ignorance that we have amongst the Texas electric that don't understand the actual power that the Lieutenant governor has and, and Patrick can do more and has not do more. Um, let's, uh, let's talk about a couple of things that are coming through in some industries. And I want your opinion on this and you've probably not been prepped on it. So you're going to have to be thinking on your feet. I do a lot of work in the, uh, the transportation and uh, sector. I work a lot with trucking, have been for a long period of time, and right now it's in a lot of turmoil. Texas, California, and Florida are what we would call litmus test states for a lot of what we call autonomous technology for trucking. Uh, that's where a truck is basically given the ability to drive either by itself in total or with somebody sitting across the other side kind of sleeping. Now, on the federal level, there is no regulation on this. And on the, the, the Texas level, I've, I've had, uh, I had uh, the transportation secretary on one of my other shows here about a year and a half ago. Uh, he's kind of embracing it, Terry Canales. Where do you stand on autonomous trucking as far as running freight up and down Texas highways, in other words, with nobody behind the wheel, do you, would you support it? And then depending on whether you support it or don't support it, what would you put and push through legislation to be sure if it's done, it's done correctly or outlaw it completely? Ooh, the autonomous. All right. So yeah, yeah we're, we're in the, we're in the, we're in the mud now. No, I'm fine with that because I have my opinions on 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 all this anyway. My personal opinions on it, and I have no problem. Um, I think the future is the fact that we're going to have computers driving the cars. I, I think that's just a fact. Um, I don't think we can get around that. Honestly, if you really want to think about saving lives when it comes to driving, computer systems are a lot more accurate, and it takes out the guesswork of driving. And so I think that's why we're going to be seeing it go that way. Uh, I don't think you can get around it. Uh, I think it's just inevitable. The problem I have with it is that we have to change a lot of things for it to work properly. There's only so much cameras can work and there's only so many things they can detect. And until our roadways are designed properly to allow those drive, those, those vehicles to drive that way, we're going to always see issues. And when you're talking about the big trucks, the freight moving, I'm talking, I'm talking 80,000 pound rigs running up right. I-35, I-40, I-20. Correct. And, and so when you're talking about that, you know, when you already see people get mad about Tesla having issues, which I laugh because people die all the time in road accidents. And I think Tesla's had hardly any in, in the whole scheme of how many people use it. It's such a small percentage. But when you're talking about an 80,000 pound truck making that mistake, you could lose a lot of people real fast. And you could cause some major, major problems. So I don't think I'm, I'm, I'm not okay with anybody not being actively sitting there monitor. I don't mind it doing the driving as long as there's a driver there that in case they notice it not doing, they can grab the wheel and go. They call that level four, by the way. Okay. Level four. Okay. So I'm fine with that because we need to train the software in order to do it. But I think until we figure out a way to handle the roads differently and invest in a, in a true redesign of every system, to make it work, I don't think that's a good idea without someone at least being behind the wheel. I, I don't mind that part of it uh, just because, one, these guys are driving all day long. 
you know, they, at least if they can sit there and monitor, but they don't have to have their hands, you know, held up, especially when you're driving through some of this, the, the roads uh, the way they are in Texas. I, I don't see anything wrong with that part, but I wouldn't agree to full autonomous unless you're going to redesign the roads to go with it. And I don't, that's a huge investment. And we- It's a very big investment. That it's, would have to a, be a- multi, It's a multi-trillion dollar investment is what it is. Yes. And I think that would have to be a multi-part where everybody's involved from the, the federal government to the state government to the industries that want to invest in it. I mean, I don't think you just say, oh, the government goes and pays for this. That's kind of the same problem with this high-speed rail. They want the government to go pay for a high-speed rail. No, no, no. You're, you're a business. You need to pay for it. Uh, so I- I don't see that anytime soon, not unless we have a major breakthrough in a way that we could redesign roads with existing roads where we could literally go down and just do a quick marker system that, that it well, would register. And- I will tell you right now, there and, and there are t- there are trucking technology firms specializing in this that are planning on having this stuff. I mean, they're advancing very fast. And I don't disagree with anything that you just said, by the way, but they're going to have vehicles that are quote unquote capable of it, whether or not the infrastructure is capable. I agree. I don't think it's there. That doesn't mean it's going to stop. So how would you propose, based upon what you just said, what legislation would you propose and push through to protect Texas highways until such technology is, in fact, ready, whether it's road redo or whatever? I mean, I would say if, if we're going to talk legislation, if, if there's not anything on there and it's becoming there's a, nothing. that big, there's right nothing. Now they have the well, yeah, because- kingdom. Yeah, no one's, no one's, that's never been a problem for to think about. Yeah. Um, I would say we need legislation that, that, and kind of what I said there, like we need to, we need to have a step process where right now we'd say, okay, we're good with level four, as long as there's someone actively behind the driver's seat that can cover for it, um, in case it, it was to fail, then I'd be fine with that. I mean, I've already seen them on the road. They've got those big, I think they're the ones I've seen driving so much that have all these sensors running around the fronts. They've got all those, kinds those of those are the test pilots, yes. Yeah, because I saw I think four I saw four of them the other day going to Houston, and I was like, I haven't seen any yet. And I said, I was like, what the heck? And they all have yeah. the same truck name. Texas, so yeah, Texas is I will tell you, California, Texas, and Florida, uh, they are test states, and okay. they are being used to test this technology. So it's it's being used right here, right now. But I've not seen anything where there's any type of regulatory. I mean, I know we have a transportation committee. Uh, I've not seen any regulations that say, here's how you can do it. Here's the conditions. Here's your financial requirements. Because here's something you need to know as a candidate, should you become lieutenant governor, there is no there is no insurance company currently in the United States or out of Europe that will insure a fully autonomous company. So there is no financial backstop. So let's say you have a 80,000 pound truck that gets hacked, one of my issues with it, turns it into a weapon and does God knows what damage, or you simply have a technology fail, which is going to happen, loses tire loads, a shift loads, and you have a wreck, you might have a multi-billion dollar company that has two or three wrecks, and because of bad press and bad payout, they're out of business in two years. So that's something to keep in mind if you go through. Here's another topic that's related to this, but it is something that is a state-level area that could be addressed. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with the term lawsuit financing at all. Is that familiar with you at all? No, that one I'm not familiar okay. with. When I talk about it, it's probably going to ring some bells. Um, currently, if someone, let's say I'm a truck driver and I hit you and you get damaged, you might want to sue me and you go get a lawyer that does it and they sue me and my insurance company and maybe the insurance company doesn't 
cooperate right. They do some stupid things, and that does happen. You and that lawyer would have had to make a decision as to whether you try to settle or go and sue on, okay? Now, about 20 years ago, some people started changing the game, and it really came on about four years ago where you got an outside third party that now wants to come in and say, you know what, Aaron? Darren Yancey did you damages. We're going to pay you money now so that you're taken care of, so that your attorney can fight on. But when you settle, you're going to give us a percentage of that back. It's called lawsuit financing. It has taken the insurance industry and turned it upside down in the last five years. It is causing rates to go up astronomically. We have things, what's called nuclear lawsuits that are coming out with large payouts. These are impacting the insurance company's ability, not only to pay claims on a ongoing and a continuous basis, it's making the premiums in certain sectors in logistics, very unaffordable. A lot of trucking companies are going out. It is something that could be handled on the federal level, Right now, there is no way it's going to happen with the current people that are in the House of Representatives. It was something that possibly came out a year and a half ago uh, as legislation never got out of committee. Is this something you would have an interest in should you become lieutenant governor in finding the necessary legislation to help curb that in Texas? Yeah, I mean, I, I don't like IK. I had an idea what you were getting at, um, but I would say it's. Right now, my priorities are the SB1 through SB8. That's what I've said. The, the eight priorities of the people from there, then I'll start figuring out what we need to do. If, if a bill comes up and it's presented and it makes logical sense, I would say, yeah, that probably needs to stop. And obviously, that's probably going to come up if it's affecting that many trucks and insurance companies, because we shouldn't be financing lawsuits. Uh, that's that's laughable. Um Man, we finance everything these days, don't we? So, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the whole lawsuits and the, I mean, lawsuits in Texas are messed up anyway. We're, we're between tort reform and all these things. We've messed up so much with dealing with the, the lawyers and the suits against everything. And it's funny because you say that and it reminds me now of something that happened with me. When I went through disability, they came after me and they said, well, they said, you're going to get your disability. This company is going to go file for you and uh, they're going to go to the, the to try to get you Social Security. But if they win this battle, you now have to pay back all the money that long-term right. disability. And I'm like, wait, then what's the point of me doing this? If I'm giving you all, that's my disability. Why do I owe you? And he's like, well, that's part of the agreement. That, that, I'm like, who enacted this law? I so I agree. Yes, we need to get rid of that stuff. That's bad. I, I got about 15 seconds. I can let you wrap up. Tell people why they need to vote for Aaron Sorrells. You can give them your website. Tell them how they can be involved. And we're going to wrap up the show. All right. So, uh, my website is uh, to short is the, uh, the S number four TX.com. Uh, that is the short version, or you can go to Sorrell's number four Texas.com. Uh, you can go to all social media. Everything is under at Sorrell's number four Texas across pretty much every platform. Um, all I'd have to say is if, if you take a look at me, you see what I'm doing, you'll see there's a difference in me. I'm, I'm very passionate about what I'm doing. Uh, I've, I've run a small business. I know how to get things done. I've done everything that you want is an American dream. And all I would like to say is please vote for me come March 1st and let's vote all these incumbents out. All right, folks. I hope you've had a wonderful time listening to the show today. I want to appreciate Aaron for coming on. You've been listening to the Information Edge podcast with Darren Yancey. And once again, I'll be back next week with a, another message. Our goal is to keep you informed, educated, and hopefully a little entertained. Have a great week. We'll talk to you then.
Thank you for tuning in to the Information Edge. Please join your host, Darren Yancey, again next Wednesday at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Central, and 4 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll have more to share then.